Lord, your word, Father, help us. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we would be able to see the wonderful, glorious truths of the gospel outlined before us here in Romans chapter 5. And as we just, just sang about the wonder of your amazing love for us, shown through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that that reality, that truth, would fill our hearts with joy this morning. And Lord, build up the faith that is within your people this morning. And Father, for those here that are yet outside of faith, draw them in. Draw them in, Lord. Make Make it so that their hearts would be so enthralled with the reality of the gospel that they would come and be transformed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. When my, uh, my wife Greta and I um, were on our honeymoon 15 years ago now, uh, we were in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, and one of the most memorable days um, of our time there was spent in a place called Cades Cove. Uh, Cades Cove is a historical site within uh, the Smoky Mountain uh, National Park. Um, it's this huge flat valley right in the middle of the Smoky Mountains. The, 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 the mountains surround it. And it's this little valley, flat valley, uh, that is just a remarkable place uh, to, uh, to, to, to see and to experience. And there's this road um, called the Cades Cove Loop that you can drive around, it takes you all the way around the cove, and it's only 11 miles uh, to get from, you know, one, one side uh, to the other uh, around that loop, and uh, this, uh, this place was a historical settlement, no one's living there now, but it was a historical settlement, settled uh, sometime in the early 1800s, and many of the buildings uh, there have been preserved, there are, there, there are log cabins there, uh, there are houses uh, there's a grist mill, which is still operating uh, for tourists uh, to check out. And there are three church buildings uh, in the cove as well. And uh, Greta and I are fascinated with history, so we loved walking around and just taking it all in. Uh, we spent some time in those church buildings. There, there, there may even be a few pictures that Greta took of me getting up behind the pulpits of those church buildings and acting like I was, I was preaching um, there. What I was most interested to see in this historical site, where I spent most of my time, was in the cemeteries. Each of those churches also had a cemetery next to it, and I was really interested in walking through those cemeteries, reading the names and the dates uh, and some of the messages written on all those gravestones. Uh, there were graves of men who were killed in the Civil War, both Union soldiers and rebel soldiers were buried in those cemeteries, some even in the same cemeteries. Uh, there were graves of, of infants and young children. And as I read all these names, I, I got to know the names of what must have been the dominant families who had settled there in the cove. Well, of course, their names were the ones that kept coming up over and over again on those gravestones. Of course, it reminded me of the uh, different family names which make up 
the many gravestones in my hometown cemetery. Uh, that is a familiar characteristic of every cemetery, especially in small towns and rural areas like ours. This past uh, Friday morning, I was in the Clarkson Cemetery and got to read a, a few of the names on the, the gravestones there. I was, of course, there for the funeral service for Karen's mom, and, uh, but I wasn't in the cemetery for very long. It seems like nowadays uh, they don't really want you to stay too long in the, in the cemetery. You know, the pastor spoke very briefly, and then we were told to uh, get back to the church for lunch, and I don't think we were out there for much more than 10 minutes. But I suppose that, that, that suited most people just fine. I mean, for the most part, people don't like to spend time in cemeteries. When I was a young child and uh, I was riding in the car with my family, I, re- I remember when my older sister first told me that I was supposed to hold my breath while we drove past a cemetery, which was usually a pretty easy thing for, for us to do. I mean, you know, we're driving through these small towns. It doesn't take too long to get past the cemeteries in these small towns, especially if it's outside of the town and on a, a, uh, a county road. You, you kind of zipped right, right by it, so no big deal. However, sometimes we went to larger towns. And, uh, of course, larger towns have larger cemeteries. I remember some towns were entering the town and driving past a cemetery and I just couldn't hold my breath long enough to get past the whole cemetery. So, you know, I'd have to take one of those quick breaths of, you know, right, you know try, try, to, try to make sure that I did that quick and hope that my sister didn't notice <laughs> that I had to take a breath getting uh, through that, that cemetery. Um, but usually after we'd, after we, after we'd, we'd get by the, the, the big cemeteries, we'd all kind of go, oh, you know, oh, thankful, thankful. We don't have to do that anymore. And then one of us would say, man, uh, I never want to live in this town. They have such a big cemetery. Everyone must have to die in this town. Well, we, of course, didn't, did, didn't know how right we were. But we also didn't realize that it doesn't matter where you live, whether the town is big or small, whether they have a large cemetery or a small one, everybody who lives there will die. Cemeteries remind us of this, and that's why kids make up silly games so that they don't have to think about it. But no matter what we do, there are far too many reminders that death is a reality in this world. It is an awful, terrible, sad reality. One of my uh, pastor heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, the world is a place of cemeteries. It is a place where death seems to reign. Try as we, we, we may, we can't conquer it. It has come for our loved ones, and we couldn't stop it. One day it will come for us, and what can we do against it? You know, why is something so terrible, so awful, and so sad a part of the world that God has made? Well, Romans chapter 5, second half of, of this chapter, which is our text for today, explains this to us. 
And our main theme for verses 12 through 21 here, Romans 5, is that the story of humanity comes down to two men. The story of all of humanity comes down to two men. In the first man, we all die through his sin. In the second, we may all live through his death. Article 3 of our uh, Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith describes humanity's great problem in this way. It says, we believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued reconciled, and renewed. And Romans 5, 12 through, through, through 21 is a key passage in the Bible which focuses on both why we die and how we can be rescued from death. And we're just gonna take this paragraph by, by paragraph. I have three paragraphs here. Uh, first is verses 12 through 14, and the heading that I put over that is that sin and death spread to all men through the first man. I read that again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And so right there you see that verse 12 begins with the word Therefore, so we know we are jumping right into the middle of an explanation that Paul's giving. We are halfway through chapter 5, and the Apostle Paul, in the first half of the chapter, had been teaching about the remarkable grace of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 1, and here Paul shows us the main focus of chapter 5, which is the reconciliation of sinners who were enemies of God to now being at peace with God. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In order to be at peace with God, sinners would need to have their sin dealt with. And they would have to be righteous before God. For he is a holy God. And in chapters 3 and 4 of Romans, Paul was explaining there how God was able to justify sinners through the saving work of Christ. That is, God was able to declare sinners like you and I righteous in his sight through our faith in what Christ accomplished on our behalf. That's what justified by faith is referring to. And Paul goes on then in verses 6 through 11 of, of Romans 5 here to describe more uh, our, our helplessness and our hopelessness before him in our sinful condition. We were his enemies, and therefore were under his wrath. We were ungodly, and therefore we could not be in relationship with him. And we were far too weak to save ourselves. But then as verse 8 tells us, look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even though we were sinners 
and under his condemnation for our sin, God still loved us. And so he sent his son to die for us so that we could be justified and reconciled with him. And look down at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then that brings us to to verse 12, our, our passage here. Starting with verse 12, Paul will now begin to answer the question, how can the death of one man, Jesus, truly reconcile all sinners who have faith in him to God? How can, we, how can we be reconciled to God through our faith in Jesus, this, this one man who died for us? So that's what the, the therefore in verse 12 is there for. He's going to provide his explanation. But right away in verse 12, he kind of gets sidetracked talking about death. So he'll get back to answering the challenge in verse 18, but the, whole, the Holy Spirit here led Paul to spend a few sentences answering our questions about death. Why is death a part of our human experience? There, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The one man here that he's referring to is, of course, Adam, the first man. He was the first man, and he was the first sinner. As the first man, Adam represented all men before God. He was our representative or our federal head. When when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God came and confronted Adam. He confronted Adam first, for he was considered by God as as head over Eve. This does not mean that Adam was was more valuable or more significant than Eve. They're both made in the image of God, but Adam's role in creation was of the federal or representative head. That is, he represented Adam. Mankind. He represented Eve and all of humanity after him in his relationship with God. So as verse 12 explains, when the, when the first man sinned, death came into the world through his sin. And so death then spread to all men because all sinned in him. That is all humanity sinned in Adam since he was our representative before God. And remember, God had said, if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, then he would die. That is, death would come into the world. And death came into the world through his sin. And as long as there is sin in the world, sinners will die. This means that all human beings come into the world as sinners. We're all born with a sin nature. Sin can be defined as doing what we want to do rather than what God tells us to do. It is that, it is that, that, that pull, that, that desire within your heart that refuses to submit to what God says, to what you know is, is right in his sight, and instead doing what you really want to do. That's sin. That's that sin nature within us. Uh, just this week, I started reading a new Bible story book with my boys uh, at bedtime. And so, at the very start of this Bible story book, of course, it's focused on the very story of the fall of man into sin and, and how uh, a sin nature has now been passed down to every person after Adam. So, one of the questions I asked uh, the boys was whether or not they could tell if their two-year-old sister, Betty, had a sin nature. 
They both immediately answered yes. <laughs> I asked, how can you tell? And they both proceeded to give me several examples of how Betty uh, has done what she knew was wrong and yet did it anyway, sometimes even with a smile. In verse 13, we have this statement that, that, that might be confusing to us. It says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So this is starting to get the, the purpose of the law, which Paul will come back to in verse 20. And that is, it is the law given through Moses and revealed to God's people that convicts us of our sins. It shows us we are sinners. Before the law was given, there was definitely sin in the world, he's saying. But when there was no law revealed to humanity, well, we could easily convince ourselves that our actions were good and right. But if we were not faced with God's clear word, we can suppress the truth that our actions are actually evil. You know, we, we can convince ourselves, yeah, well, what, what I'm doing is, is right, unless there's a word from God that says, this is sin. That's what Paul's getting at there in that verse. And then in verse 14, Paul writes another word about sin. That is that death reigned even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now the difference between Adam's sin and all other sins in humanity after him was that no other man after Adam had the kind of relationship that Adam had with God. Think about that. Adam knew God without sin. He had a relationship with the Lord that was not tainted by sin. And the Lord had told Adam directly, he had a direct revelation from God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that if he did, he would die. And yet, he disobeyed anyway. That was different from all other sins that man commits after him. But even so, we, 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 we are given a note that will help us understand Adam's role better and that Paul says here, he was a type of the one who was to come at the end of verse 14. So there is a similarity here between the first man, Adam, and the second man who was to come. This is where Paul introduces Christ into this discussion. Uh, but first he will spend the next paragraph contrasting the two, Adam and Christ, and showing us how much greater Christ is. That's what we see in the next paragraph, 15 through 17. The second man is not like the first. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. In these verses, we are introduced to what Paul refers to as the free gift. We see this over and over again, the free gift, the free gift. Other translations uh, may just have it as the gift. Now, already, this sounds much better than the sin and death that the first man brought into the world and passed down to us. The second man, Jesus Christ, has made it possible for sinful man to receive this free gift. Now, if this news wasn't coming to us in the middle of Romans, where we've already heard about how God justified and reconciled sinners to himself by faith in Jesus, we would be shocked to hear that God is offering this free gift to sinners. Why would a holy God offer a free gift to sinners, to, to, to rebels, to people who because of their sin nature and evil deeds deserve only his condemnation and wrath. 
well, this must be a gracious God we are dealing with here. This must be a God who has committed himself to love these people, no matter what it costs him. And it does cost him. The gift is free to us, but there was a high cost which God had to pay in order to present the gift to us. But what is this free gift? I don't know about you, but I've been offered a lot of free gifts. People call me on the phone, or I get an email, or I get this fancy, colorful, you know, mailing that tells me that I can have a free gift if I agree to do such and such. So it'd be good for us to know what the free gift is here and just just what it entails for us to receive it. Well, verse 15 and 16 tell tell us what the free gift is not like. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man in Christ Jesus abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So the free gift is not like the trespass, which is the sin of Adam, the first man. Because the result of that trespass was that death came into the world and then spread to everyone so that now death has been a part of everyone's experience. This world really is a place of cemeteries. But the free gift, it says, is not like that trespass. Compared to how death has reigned and has been this inescapable reality for all of humanity because all of humanity have a sinful nature and all have sinned, God's grace through Jesus Christ will be even greater. His grace will reign as the inescapable reality for all those who put their faith in Christ and receive this free gift. His grace is greater than the trespass. His grace will overrule death. Even though we die because of sin, yet shall we live if we trust in Christ. And then in in verse 16, we read that this free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin because the sin of Adam sent the whole of humanity under God's just condemnation. Again, being born with a sinful nature meant that we were born enemies of God. Our, Our wills are naturally not inclined to bend toward God, but rather to bend away from him. Our rebellious and proud hearts refuse to submit to God's will. And since God is the holy sovereign king over all of humanity, well, when you refuse to submit to a sovereign king, what will the king do? Well, he will condemn you. And God is just to condemn rebellious sinners. Yet through Christ, there is this free gift offered to sinners, which is not like the result of the one man's sin. Rather than condemnation, the work of the second man, Jesus, brings justification. That is, rather than being condemned for sins by the holy sovereign king, you are instead declared righteous by that holy sovereign king. Then Paul broadens our understanding of of this free gift then in verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace 
and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The saving work of Christ is much more glorious, much more lasting, much more powerful than the the destructive and deadly result of Adam's sin upon humanity. His trespass brought death, and death reigned on the earth because of his sin. But Christ's work has earned this free gift of righteousness and life in him for all who will receive the gift. Notice that there. That, 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 that's there right in the middle of the verse, those who will receive the gift. Again, there is this difference between Adam and Christ. Adam's sin brought death to all of humanity. That followed him. Christ's free gift will be enjoyed only by those who receive it. It is there offered to all men, but only those who humble themselves and receive this free gift will be able to enjoy it and will be able to overcome sin and death through being declared righteous by God and thus reconciled to him and given everlasting life in Christ. It is a humbling thing to receive a free gift of help. It's humbling. That's why so many parents who are really struggling to feed their children still refuse to go to something like a food pantry to receive a free gift of food. It's humbling. It's humbling to admit you need help. That's also why why married couples who have really struggled in their relationship with each other for years may still refuse to come and meet with a pastoral counselor, even when many believers who love them have encouraged them to do so. Why? Why? Because it is such a humbling thing to take an honest look at yourself and have to admit where you have been wrong and then ask for forgiveness. Let's be honest. This free gift sounds great, but it can be a humbling experience for anyone to receive this free gift of salvation from the Lord. You have to humble yourself to receive it. Only sinners are in need of salvation from the Lord. You have to humble yourself. You have to know and admit that you are one who needs the grace of God in order to receive the free gift from the Lord. But that free gift is there, and he is offering it to you. Now, last paragraph, verses 18 through 22, see, sin and death reign over all those yet in Adam, but grace and life reign in the lives of those who are in Christ by faith. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now at verse 18, Paul finally gets to the point he began to make back in verse 12. How could sinners be reconciled to God? Well, he explains it here by by comparing the one act of righteousness which Christ accomplished with the one trespass of the first man which led to condemnation for all men. Christ's work was far better. To simplify it for you, 
Adam's sin led to death for all men, but Christ's saving act led to justification for all. We are either in one or the other. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. One man disobeyed and brought destruction. The other man obeyed and brought salvation and restoration and will eventually bring renewal of all things. Verse 20 says something that might sound strange to us here. It says, again, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul is not telling us the whole purpose of God's giving the law here, but this was an essential purpose for it. For when the law was given to the people of God through Moses, he says sin increased. Sin increased in the sense that their sin became clearly manifest or seen to be sin by all who heard and knew the law. When I went to high school, um, in our high school, in the boys' locker room, there were two ways in and out of our locker room. One way was by a door in the hallway. That was the main entrance to the boys' locker room. But there was another way in and out. There was a door that connected the boys' locker room with the coaches' offices and, and their locker room. And if the coaches weren't in the locker room or their offices, well, you could get away with using that exit because it was a lot faster to get out of the building through that exit and in the parking lot after practice than having to go all the way around using the other exit. And everyone knew that, you know, it was probably wrong to use the, the, this exit, yet many of us did it anyway. Could just listen to the door. Are they, are they behind there? Nope. Okay. And we'll go through. But when I was a sophomore, they put up a sign on that door, which told us that students were not allowed to use that door. When that happened, it made it obvious to all that if you still tried to take that door to get out, you were breaking a rule. And it weighed on my conscience a lot more. Did I still do it? Yes, I did. But now I really knew what I was doing. It was wrong, and it was obvious to others that saw me doing it when I did it. I was breaking a rule. After the law was given to Israel, they decided, you know, if, if, if they decided then to make a graven image and call it their God, it would be clearly seen that they were sinning against God. No matter how they tried to justify themselves in doing it, they knew this was wrong. Knowing the law then would humble God's people. It would show them their sinful condition, that they were just like their father Adam, and they were disobedient trespassers, and they deserved God's judgment, which would lead them to recognize their desperate need then for a Savior. The law would lead them to Christ. That's the purpose of the law. And then it goes on, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This morning, as we have come together, all people in this room and all people in the world are either in Adam or in Christ. We are either still under the reign of sin and death, 
or we have received the free gift of justification and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. You are either still under the dominion of sin, which leads to condemnation, or you are under the dominion of grace, which leads to eternal life. So which are you? Where do you stand this morning? Again, friends, the human condition is a humbling one. Right now, there are people in nursing homes, in hospitals, in their own beds, in their homes, who are taking their last breaths. They are helpless to stop it. The most skilled physicians may have even used all of their knowledge as well as the most effective treatment plans, but they can't stop death from coming. Many families will gather together this week and they'll receive handshakes and hugs from friends and neighbors. They will sit through a service. They will stand out in the cold in a cemetery next to a freshly dug hole in the ground where another lifeless body will be laid to rest. We live in a world of cemeteries. But hopefully, in that funeral service and at that cemetery, there will be a man with an open Bible. And he will be proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that death is an enemy that has been overcome by Christ, that our sin can be forgiven, that we can be declared righteous before God if we would but humble ourselves and look to Jesus as our Savior, as our King, as our only hope before a holy God. I pray that all of us here would take this word seriously that we would humble ourselves and receive this free gift, or that we would take the message of this free gift and share it with someone who needs to hear it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, as we uh, close our time together in your word, I pray that your word would still be working in our hearts, that we would leave this morning with your words weighing upon us, that if we need to repent of our sin and admit to you that we can't continue on in this way that we need you to change our lives and, and live in us, Lord, that we would do so. Or, Lord, if we have the burden of loved ones on our hearts, people we know that aren't, aren't walking with you, they're not in Christ, they're still in Adam. Lord, that we would pray and we would seek ways to share the hope of the gospel with them. So it would help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.